Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. Hey, Wendy, we have a special treat this week. Ooh, a special treat. I yes. love treats. I know. I know. The <laughs> special treat is going back in time. What? You finally got that time machine I've always wanted? Oh, I, thanks, Mike. I finally got the time machine. It's not even my birthday. No, I know. I know. But the, uh, the special treat this week is that um, we're going back in time, back to 2012. Whoa. Yep. And... Um, my sister, Allison from Milwaukee Ghosts, who you know and, and many of their podcast yes. listeners might know because she's guested on many of the, the podcasts, um, we, we worked on a, uh, a video about the Myrtles Plantation in Louisiana okay. in 2012. And this is pretty much the definitive word on the Myrtles Plantation, I think. Wow. It's, it's, it's supposed to be one of the most haunted places in America, and it's been investigated by you know, the ghost hunters and ghost adventures and almost every ghost TV show has been there. Okay. And in 2000, Allison and I actually spent the night there. Whoa, scary. You guys are brave. I was scared the whole time. She was like, oh, I hope we see a ghost. And I'm like, I just hope I don't get the bed. <laughs> oh, God. Because they leave you completely alone when you're there. There's That's like, amazing. There's like somebody maybe like a half a mile away staying. But mm-hmm. otherwise, it's just several groups of people staying in the various bedrooms on the site. Do you think they have cameras? I don't know. Because I like snuck in like the, the doors. That, like there was one door that wasn't locked. So then I just went throughout the whole thing with like a video camera and stuff like that. And nobody said like, hey, you, you were going where you weren't supposed to last night. Okay. This is what would make me nervous. You've got all these bunches of different people. Mm-hmm. Don't you like sneak into each other and freak each other out? Well, nobody else was sneaking around that night. But we, <laughs> okay. did, hang, we did hang out with some Cajuns. Oh, that's fine. And that was pretty fun because they were like real deal Cajuns with the, you know, a guarantee accent <laughs> and everything. And we really enjoyed, like we, we hung out with them all night long until it was bedtime. Cool. And uh, they were a lot of fun. But um, I think I was the only person sneaking around the premises in the middle of the night. <laughs> so you were on a family vacation or? Yes. Okay. Got and the it. thing is the rest of our family stayed in New Orleans, which is an hour and a half away. And it's less so- scary. Much well. Well, it's my, it's probably as haunted though. At least. Right, oh yeah, there's plenty of ghost stories and stuff like that. But where we went, it's uh you know this uh, St. Francisville, Louisiana. Okay. And so we went up to the town and and we went stayed on the plantation in the middle of nowhere in Louisiana. <laughs> and our parents and Allison's husband drove back to New Orleans to stay where we had a we rented a little house in the Garden District for the week. It was very so quaint. You, and you couldn't leave. No, we weren't. Because your mode of transportation was gone right. there was absolutely no escape which made it much <gasps> more terrifying <laughs> and we talk about that a little in this thing we made a couple of years ago we were working on something called paranormal wisconsin and we were working with the people at the brumder mansion which is a thing in, in milwaukee right. a, a haunted location in milwaukee and they wanted to start putting like videos together and stuff and we started working on it we spent three days there doing interviews with various people about the myrtles plantation like talking to the people that owned it, people that worked there, people that had done research. And really, you're going to find stuff in here that you're not going to get in any TV show 
or even on the internet or anything like that because we kind of bring it all together into one. It's like this is the last word. A the conclusive word. I believe. I awesome. believe it is. Well, I'm very excited to hear this and I'm going to definitely listen to it with the lights on. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> now the thing is, is that so we had gone there. So we had a special interest and, and Allison really did a ton of research and found like the conflicting stories about it. And that's kind of what we get into when we interview the different people. And it was meant to be like a whole video and stuff. And I edited it all together and everything. But then that particular project didn't go anywhere. I see. Okay. So I'm excited that, you know, four years later we can use it. People can enjoy it. And the information is still good in there. And if you're thinking about going to the Myrtle's Plantation for an overnight stay uh, at the haunted premises, (laughs) then you'll want to listen to this beforehand. Spanish moss hanging from towering live oaks, garden statues resembling a woman and children turned to stone, and a grand antebellum home filled with curious antiques. This place sure looks haunted. But is it? We'll examine the claims and present the evidence. I'm Allison Jornlin, founder of MilwaukeeGhost.com, and this is my brother Mike from ParanormalWisconsin.com. My sister and I organize ghost tours throughout our home state of Wisconsin. We're here today in Milwaukee's haunted Brumder Mansion, live from the George Suite. We've been interested in investigating the paranormal ever since we were kids. We love folklore and history, and this is a video primer aimed at helping you separate fact from fiction. The most powerful tool an investigator has is knowledge. Before you visit the Myrtles, we'll make sure you get up to speed. Consider this your Myrtle's Plantation dossier. We'll talk to the experts and present historical documentation to give you an in-depth look at this storied location. The Myrtle's Plantation is located in Louisiana's West Feliciana Parish in the town of St. Francisville. Now that's about 100 miles northwest of New Orleans and 30 miles north of Louisiana's capital, Baton Rouge. Built circa 1796 by General David Bradford, the Myrtles Plantation has been called the most haunted house in America. Now many vacationers, including Hollywood luminaries like Dan Aykroyd, Nicolas Cage, and Hilary Swank have all spent the night there. There's been numerous reports of paranormal activity over the decades, and according to paranormal experts, this is one haunt that really does deserve its reputation. But is there any truth to these claims? Or have we been misinformed? Although some skeptics have asserted that ghost stories hadn't been attributed to the Myrtles before the 1950s, that is incorrect. The first reports of paranormal activity at the Myrtles Plantation likely originated with the families of the former owners, and that was first documented in the 1900s. Some of the Myrtles' ghost stories were documented in 1941 during the Federal Writers Project. And then in 1948, in the photo log, Ghost Along the Mississippi by Clarence Laughlin. However, the ghosts mentioned in these sources barely resemble the claims that we've heard in recent years. Let's start with some modern tales told by Francis Kermine, former owner of the Myrtles Plantation. So we're here talking with Francis Kermine, and she literally wrote the book on the Myrtles Plantation. So what better expert to talk to today? Hey, Francis, how are you doing? Great, how are you? (laughs) Thanks for hanging out with us today, Francis. Now, a a quick question for you. When uh, you owned the Myrtles Plantation, what was your first clue that the place might be haunted? 
the first time I ever set foot was as a prospective buyer. And every time the group of us would laugh, I would hear a room full of laughter, like a party was going on. And that would last for a few seconds after we stopped laughing. And then I had my name called. It was a woman's voice. And I asked the owner if there was something strange. And he said, absolutely not. And we learned later that he had told the staff not to let any prospective buyer know that the house was haunted. Uh, what are some of your favorite encounters that you've had at the Myrtles Plantation? Just to stop that, you're like, whenever somebody asks you about it, you're like, well, this one, this one's one of my favorites, or this is why I had to write the book. Well, probably the most frightening thing that happened to me was that my husband got possessed. And we were doing a seance, and we just do not allow, did not allow seances after that because of everything that happened. But a very trusted and dear friend, Hampton Sanders, was leading the seance. We were trying to get information about past lives and past people who own the Myrtles. And all of a sudden, the third time that he went into a trance, my husband looks changed to a woman, and a woman's voice came out of him. And... We couldn't get him back. Then the clock that was in the room spun ahead three hours and the hand flew off. So it was extremely frightening. I couldn't even talk about it for a year. Oh that, that was probably the scariest thing. <laughs> Wait, how did your husband as described? Did he not remember it? Or, I mean, how, what was going through his, did he explain what was going through his head? I couldn't ask him for a year. I couldn't even bring it up. I was so scared. Now I can accept that people can get possessed. But back then I didn't really understand it or know anything about it. But he said that it was very seductive, that she was there and she wanted to share his, you know, his mind with her, with him, and that he decided to let her in for whatever reason. And um, he apparently gave her permission and then she just took over. So he sort of knew her thoughts. I don't know. It was it was just extremely frightening. We It took us hours to get him back, and then we just watched him all night to, to make sure that he was back in his body. Well, who was the ghost? Yeah. And, and maybe we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, and we should, we should lay out, like, who are the principles? I know that there's many, many spirits that uh, people believe haunt the Myrtles. And, and why don't you just go through... Um, you know, some of the, you know, top uh, apparitions or uh, or personages that are believed to be there. And, and then we can address, like, who exactly was in the, in there possessing your husband. <laughs> who, who was the... We'll talk about the likely suspects first. <laughs> well, there's hundreds of ghosts at the Myrtles. Um, and there was... Um, there was nine deaths at the Myrtles um, and all that passion and, and love and, and murder. But the house was built by General David Bradford, who lived in Pennsylvania, led the Whiskey Rebellion. And his daughter, Sarah Matilda, had two little girls. And one of the most famous ghost stories at the Myrtles is that um, Sarah had caught her husband, Judge Clark Woodruff, in bed with one of the slaves. So... The slave was so afraid that she was going to be fired or be something would happen to her that she baked a poisonous flower into the family's dessert, hoping that then she could save them and she would be um, redeemed. But Sarah and both of her daughters died that night. And the girls are seen all the time. Um, two little blonde girls. They look to be about three and five. They walk up to people. They start a conversation. 
And a lot of times people will be talking to them and they don't even realize they're talking to ghosts. They just think that there's, it's so cute that two little girls are in costume at the Myrtles. So those are probably the earliest ghosts. Um, then the Sterling family bought the house and William Winter, the son-in-law, was murdered um, around 18... Oh, 1871, I got it. I got your back, 1871. (laughs) Okay. And he was called outside. He was an attorney, and he was shot on the North Gallery. He stumbled up to the 17th step of the main staircase and died in his wife's arm. Her her name was also Sarah. But every single night, we hear the 17th steps going up the stairs. And then, like I said, sometimes the parties just go on all night long. There's a Confederate soldier that they hid during the war, and he especially comes around to help people out. It's kind of interesting, like right before something bad happens, he'll show up and and then everything works out okay. Um, there's a person that was that died in the entry hall, and there's a spot where the maids can't buff that spot. It's like running up into a body. So they they just can't get around that one spot. Um, every Thanksgiving, there's a string quartet. Um, it just goes on and on. <laughs> well, we like the we like the string quartet. That is very pleasant. <laughs> Absolutely, that's the kind of ghost we want. Now, who do you feel was the possessor? We feel it was a more recent owner, or Jim feels, that it was Mrs. Mishu. She bought the house in 1950 and lived there till about 1975. But she turned out to be a really sweet, adorable little old lady. But I was just terrified. <laughs> well, adorable and sweet until she possessed your husband. Yeah, absolutely. Right. <laughs> Let us understand, though, she's a sweet little old lady in life. And then so what happened during the, the seance that she would you know, possess your husband. I mean, what was going on there? What message was she trying to convey? I think the Myrtles is a vortex, and we've actually had researchers who's, who have told us that the Myrtles is on the same vortex as the pyramids, and, and researchers have told us different things. So I think there's a greater um, connection or, or conduit to the other side from the Myrtles. Um, I think that she wanted to be alive and and in the house. And I think that by possessing him that she had that opportunity. I have no idea. That is just my theory. I I wanted to talk to you a little bit, too, about... um about which rooms are most active. Because, Absolutely. Because, you know, when uh, when we go and visit haunted places, of course, we want to make sure that we're staying in the rooms that have the most activity so that we can have an experience when we stay there. Well, there's activity in almost every room in the house and the outdoors. So there's really no um, one spot that's the best um, in the bridal suite, which is now the, oh, I'm not sure, but the, the big suite upstairs, the bed lifts in the middle of the night. Um, there's knocking and footsteps outside the door, and you think it's just, you know, somebody coming up the stairs or, or coming to talk to you, and then you open the door and there's nobody there. Um, the smell of flowers, that's the room that Sarah Sterling lived in after her husband was shot. So she appears in that room crying, and after he died, she dressed in black. She even dyed her blonde hair black. 
So she's seen in black, sometimes just standing on the landing up there. Um, downstairs in the General Bradford suite, which was my private quarters when I owned the house, um, the same thing, footsteps, voices. Um, there's a, a feeling that you're being pulled out of your body. It, it's a hard thing to explain. It's, it's unsettling. And I didn't experience it when I was there, but I've experienced it twice since. Um, on the other wing, the peach room is where the Confederate soldier was hid. And so, in particularly in May and June, which was the actual time that he was hidden during the war, people have vivid dreams, especially men, of the Civil War or of being chased. And we actually had a, a couple on their honeymoon, and he woke up in that room feeling like um, he was sleeping and he was dreaming that he was being chased. And then he woke up feeling like his leg was being bandaged. And he looked up and there was a black lady standing there bandaging his foot. So they left in the middle of the night. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The uh, we always hear about those people who, who <laughs> leave in the middle of the night. Wouldn't we stay on the mic? Wouldn't we? Unless somebody was bandaging my foot or possessing me. Well, if they're managing your foot, you know, they, they, they don't mean you any harm. They're actually sure. trying to help you. Yeah, that's, that sounds great. Yeah, so the, the, the bandaging is fine with me. I don't know about the possession. But if it's a nice little old lady, it might be okay to give her a ride. What do you think? No. no, not <laughs> no? My, you know, my head is only so big, and so there's room for one uh, spirit in there at a time, and that's me. Tell us a little bit about the, the old nursery. That's an interesting room because the judge, um, Judge Clark Woodruff, would take slaves there to rape them um, while the children were out playing. That was his spot. And um, that's where Sarah actually caught him one day. But single ladies who sleep in that room are often seduced. Yeah, that, that's what I've heard, Mike. Uh, <laughs> every room sounds like something terrifying happens at the Merle. So, yeah. okay. Well, it, it, it adds a little something to the term value added. You know, <laughs> right. it's one of the amenities at the Myrtles. Now, now right. which you room, might get seduced. <laughs> which room is that? Which room is the, the nursery? What would it be called today? When you face the house, it's the honeymoon on the suite. <laughs> oh, sorry. 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 It's on the front right corner when you face the house. Um, I'm not sure what it's called today. Uh, they have a map of the different rooms that that people could check out in advance and choose the old nursery. Or, or if you just asked for the old nursery, they would know exactly what room that is. <laughs> Great. And uh, I, I think, um, you know, that uh, might be, do you think that might be the uh, judge coming back or, or is it something, something more demonic, like an incubus spirit? What's your read on that? No, I think it was the judge because that's what he did up there. So now, whether it's still amorous after all these years, right? <laughs> he's pretty old, but <laughs> right, right. <laughs> either, either that, or, or like you said, it could be some kind of incubus or energy that that started back then because of the the sins manifested on the on the slaves, and maybe that's what just caused this to be repetitive. But at the same time, I never had any complaints about it. <laughs> So maybe the judge is a gentle lover. <laughs> what tips you have? Do you have, or what safeguards 
um, if we're dealing with things like possession, would you recommend? Absolutely. No Ouija boards. Absolutely. No seances. It's very dangerous, as they probably would know or you would know, to ask something to come in. And I think that's where my husband made a mistake because he accepted her, you know, request. So don't ask anything to come in your in your body or, you know, to, to come inside of you personally. Um the house is just so full of things. Every night at 3 o'clock, though, seems to be the witching hour. So pay particular attention at 3 a.m. because that's when it's kind of like there's a room in the center of the house that's like the eye of the storm, and things just generate from that room, and there, it, it just seems that there's more activity at that hour. However, it could be, you know, any time, day or night, that, that you see something. So as a tip for investigators... If you head down to the Myrtles, does the old nursery seem like the place you should be staying? Because uh, that sounds like the room with the most activity. I would say that room, the big suite upstairs, the General da David Bradford suite downstairs, um, the ballrooms. They're up. Yeah, they're all. They, you're going to find something. I would always tell people if you stay three nights, you absolutely will have an experience. And this is just for lay people, just people, you know, that don't know, they didn't at that time know anything about the ghosts, or if they did, um, if they stayed three nights, something would always happen. Oh, so that's a great trip. So if you're, if you're, that's a great tip. If you're going to, if you're going to go to the Myrtles, <laughs> stay for three dates, right? <laughs> now, is there any room you're that you would you would avoid um, as an investigator because you feel that, you know, really not much goes on in that room. Probably the room in the center of the house that we call the blue room. Um, it, it didn't, there's no stories there except that it seemed at three o'clock you'd always wake up in that room and you'd feel like you were in a whirlwind, but it's probably the tamest room and you know, that's probably the room you wouldn't want. So I think yeah. next time we need to, Book at the Myrtles for three nights. True. Yes. And we need to book the old nursery room. And what are some... And bring our proton packs, I guess. <laughs> yeah, only... yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but um, what about some other tips about places to visit? I know when we were there, we visited the spectacular uh, Grace Church uh, Cemetery. Oh, that's fabulous. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and... and um, how many people associated with the Myrtles are buried there? The Sterling family was Episcopalian, so everybody in the Sterling family is buried there. The the um, Bradford family is probably buried on the grounds. It said that the parking lot is where the graveyard, they, it's right on top of the graveyard. But at Grace Church, you'll find Ruff and Gray Sterling, his wife, um, Sarah Matilda Sterling, William Winter, Kate Winter and a, a other family members. So that's, that's a great place. Um, as far as the community, um, the St. Francisville Inn has ghosts. The Barrow Inn has ghosts. Um, the graveyard's a wonderful spot. Um, also right down by the river. They used to have the ferry and now they have a bridge, but you can get out and, and walk along the river. What history supports some of the hauntings there i know there's some stories that are a little bit controversial and you know anytime you're you're working with ghost stories you're also intersecting with folklore and you know there's just no way around it and 
um, my brother and I, we run haunted history tours. So, so we know that sometimes folklore enters in, but we also like to try to separate fact from fi- fiction. We love a great ghost story. But mm-hmm. which of the stories uh, at the Myrtles do, do you feel are most supported by history? Um, definitely the Confederate soldier, because there's actually letters written between Rose Down and the people at the Myrtles about him. And so many men not knowing anything at all about the ghost have experienced that in May and June, either dreaming vivid dreams about the Civil War or, or about being chased. And as I said, the the young groom that woke up with his foot being bandaged. And those are things that actually happened. The parties, you know, that was a reality, very definitely. Um, the, the two little girls were not sure exactly the that's a wonderful myth but i'm not it's not as supported historically but there's definitely two little ghost girls um the people some people working across the street saw the little girls walking in the rain playing in the rain and they complained to one of the hostesses and she said oh those those aren't the owner's daughters those are ghosts and the lady walked off the job and quit she was so upset about that and they walked up and and talked (laughs) as you do (laughs) (laughs) i'm glad that you brought that up about um the story of the little little woodruff girls being being controversial because it might not be the the uh, the daughters of Judge Woodruff, right? Exactly. Uh, because what what I know, um, some investigators have found researching the history uh, is that uh, you know there there were uh, there were uh, daughters. He had two daughters. Judge Woodruff had two daughters and a son, and mm-hmm. and the the daughter and the son died during different years of yellow fever. That that's documented. Right, and then also uh, Sarah Matilda, his wife, she went first of of yellow fever. So the story about she waltzed first. Yes, okay. The story about Chloe is particularly interesting because um, it seems to have grown out of the pre-existing folklore of the place. Exactly, Uh, and I was told that story by the owner uh, when I moved in. Now, there's a very famous photograph at the Myrtles that does show a a lighter skin, thin um, slave. But it's a very famous, one of the most famous photos of recent years that's been taken at the Myrtles. And that's definitely not the ghost that I saw. And the ghost that I saw was the one that told, um, somebody was on a tour and they saw her crying and they said, well, why are you crying? And she said, she just learned that her father was white. And that's when this particular ghost said her name was Chloe. And that's how we got that name. Um, it's not really historically documented, and there would be no way to find out. But that's how we got the name Chloe. One of the other ghosts I wanted to touch on that that uh, did come through in some of those earlier accounts from the 40s uh, mm-hmm. was a, a baby who uh, cries in the old nursery. And, yeah. And have you heard of that story before? Has that oh, carried absolutely. into the present? I would have people occasionally, you know, I'd say, how did you sleep? Make conversation at breakfast. And they go, well, you know, the baby in the next room cried all night long. And then we'd have to tell them there was nobody else upstairs. You were the only guest. And that must have happened a hundred times while I owned the house. 
or, or people would be working upstairs and they would hear it and then they'd leave the job and I'd have to find somebody else. <laughs> so I, I'm glad to hear you say that because that, that's a story that seems to have been reported um, in the mm-hmm. past and it stayed consistent over the years. So it sounds like when you're booking your room at the Myrtles, you're going to want to look for the old nursery or the General Bradford suite if you're interested in paranormal action. Yeah, uh, Frances said a lot of strange things happened to her in that suite. And our friend, paranormal investigator Joshua P. Warren, had some similar experiences and he actually documented them on video. So we started with a former owner of the plantation from the 80s. Now let's get a little more current. And let's talk to the tour director of the Myrtles Plantation. You might remember she was on the Ghost Hunters not too long ago. Well, now she's with us. Let's talk to Hester Eby. All right, we're talking to Hester Eby from the Myrtles Plantation. Now, understand, Hester, uh, you've been there for quite a while at the Myrtles running tours. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, I have been here for a while. Yeah, how, how long about? Well, um, a little over... Mm, about 16 or so years. Wow, so you've really been there a long time. Um, so you're the right person to talk to, uh, an expert on the stories at the Myrtles. I'm no expert, but <laughs> I have heard quite a few stories. Yes. All right. Hester, who are the most famous ghosts at the Myrtles, in your opinion? I guess, in my opinion, the most famous are would be Chloe okay. uh, and the children. They're very often seen and heard more than any other spirits that are here. Could you tell us a little bit about their story? Well, the story of uh, Chloe and the children began with the second owner. Judge Clark Woodruff supposedly took Chloe on as a mistress. Uh, She was caught eavesdropping on some of the family's business. That was not allowed. It was kind of during the time that they believed whatever caused you to sin should be removed. So Judge Woodruff cut off her left ear and left her so upset that she baked the birthday cake for his oldest daughter and used the juices from the oleander leaf in that cake, killing the judge's wife, Sarah, and two of her children. And there are three of the ghosts, along with Chloe, that are still seen and heard here. And of course, Chloe is a slave. But a lot of guests that tell us they see Chloe, uh, say from the shoulders down, they see nothing but a blue mist of a shade. From the neck up, she's a black woman. She has a large earring on the right ear, the left ear missing, and of course she's wearing the turban. Those that see the children, it tends that bad weather draws them. They, uh, we have guests, we're bed and breakfast, that are upstairs and they say it's storming. I feel like I've been here before. So if you come and you're looking for something to happen, it just very well may happen. And sometimes, you know, we have guests that say, oh, it's not haunted, I'm not worried about that. And a lot of times they're the ones that leave us before their evening is over. (laughs) Right. Uh, Which rooms do you think are the most active where uh, people seem to have um, the most encounters or at at least discuss the most? I really believe in the main house any of those rooms, and we have six rooms in the main house. One of them in particular, I, I listen to the uh, evening uh, tour guides, the mystery tour guides a lot, and uh, it seems that one room that we call the Fanny Williams room right now has a lot of activity going on. It, it always has, but uh, 
it's sometimes called the doll room. And uh, the dolls do have a, a tendency to move around sometimes in that particular room. But all the rooms have stories behind them, people. Now, we've heard other people say that uh, perhaps uh, a room there at the Myrtles, which was an old nursery, is, is a good bet for some activity. Um, and actually, in some um, documentation from 1940, the 1940s, um, an old nursery is mentioned. Um, so could you tell us uh, which room in the house was a former nursery? Okay, I didn't really get the first part of the question, but I think I got enough of the end of it. Uh, there, there's a room that we call uh, the Ruff and Sterling Room that has been referred to earlier as the children's nursery. And, you know, it's strange about that room is uh, we have not, or I have not heard it lately, but a lot of guests have told us uh, the last time I heard a story about that in this forest, children uh, crying or a child sounds like a baby crying is uh, we had a group of nurses here, and there are four rooms on that side, and Ruffin Sterling is one of them. And they had booked all four, but unfortunately one of the ladies could not come. And uh, they said late night they heard a child crying. And being in their profession, you know, of course they knocked to see if they could help. And they said a lady answered and just told them to go away. But they said the cry upset them so that they went and got management. But when they went in, of course, no one was there. But the children's nursery has always had stories behind it. Uh, they like to play in makeup in that room. So we've had a lot of ladies had their makeup kind of disturbed. Uh, they, for some reason, must think that uh, the tubes of lipstick may be some type candy because they often, you know, they'll either bite into or break tubes of, uh, of lipstick and when uh, our guests look for them you know I can tell them it, it chances are it's under the bed and it is wow I have never heard that before that's a good one yeah that's, that's a great one that that if you stay in that room you know put out some makeup uh, specifically oh, yeah, lipstick. The little fingerprints yeah. or you know if it's powdered makeup but they're in it's in the mirror they just I think they're just fascinated with things and they may see like any other child even with your mother or whatever they see someone putting on makeup or whatever what is this you know let me try this makes me wish that i brought my lipstick when we stayed at the yeah room. you didn't know you didn't know <laughs> well y'all have to come and see us it'll be great you know i make sure to say do most of your filming outside before coming inside. You know, do as much as you can, because once you get in, a lot of times equipment will not work. Uh, they'll drain batteries time after time. And I'm talking about these, you know, you're professionals. So when you come, you're ready for your work. But our spirits sometimes just won't allow you to. Well, that was really an entertaining call, and Hester is just such a charming person to talk to. Well, you can tell why everybody loves her, and she's an absolute expert on the Myrtles Plantation. Well, though she denies it, she's very humble, but you got to give it to her. She has worked there for so long and is clearly well-versed in the folklore. Well, speaking of experts on the Myrtles, we have a paranormal investigator coming up, David Young. Now, he just appeared on the Biography Channel's My Ghost Story. His ghost story is on the Myrtles, and he's got some very interesting photos and EVPs that he's going to share with us right now. Well, what, uh, what circumstance was that particular photo taken under? 
when that photo was taken, the one you see, it was a uh, another school uh, a trip, and these kids were playing out in the backyard. Well, this photo was taken of these students posing, I guess, with the mothers and teachers, you know, on the um, on the back patio, and it appears as if she's actually coming out of the window to go play with them. And you, if you look at the photo, you can actually see her dress down below is 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 coming out of the window pane, and and if you look up above or where her neck is, the actual uh, wood goes across her neck. So she's actually, uh, you know, inside in her head area, but her lower dress area is coming out. And people say, well, that's just this curtain. And I, and I no, uh, the Society of Psychical Research asked me to go there to the Myrtles and take some more pictures of, of that window and try to stand in the same area and, and the same angle and the same time of day and everything and and shoot pictures inside and out. And uh, as I told Allison yesterday, uh, I went to go see Tita and I asked her if I could do that. And she said, certainly, certainly. The house was locked up and she walked out with me and she told Moses, her caretaker, to open the doors to let me in. And Moses had no idea what I was doing. He didn't know what I was there for. And we, we go inside, and I kneel down in the, the, it's in the dining room area is where the photo was taken, where the girl was standing. And I'm kneeling down, getting my camera, putting my glasses on, and I'm putting my camera up uh, to, to take a picture of what I assume would be the angle where she was standing. And as I was fumbling with my glasses, Moses, unbeknownst to me, was standing behind me. And he goes, oh, wow, wow, there's a little girl. There's a little girl in your, your viewfinder. And I, me, I just delayed, what, what? And I finally took a picture real quick. And, of course, nothing appeared. And I said, well, Moses, what did you see? She goes, he goes, I saw a, a girl in white in your viewfinder. And it was such, it, it was so interesting because the fact that he didn't know I was, what I was there for and why I was taking a picture there at that point. He didn't know anything about the little girl or anything like that. So he I do believe he saw something. I mean, he, it freaked him out. Uh, he, he, it really did. You could tell he wasn't he, making it up. And uh, he said, I saw a girl in your viewfinder. And I just was getting my glasses, and it happened, to, I guess, just for a second or so. So, unfortunately, though, I didn't get the picture. But I sent everything off to SBR, and uh, they analyzed it, and they came back with, uh, with, with, a, with just an email letting us know. He said, we can't find any any discrepancies uh, in your story and so you know it, it's the real thing and then they described how um they they checked the pixels you know around the edge of the photo they realized it's not you know it hasn't been superimposed on that window and then they described it would be very difficult because how they they say the the wood frame of the window is at her neck and it cuts across her neck, and but her lower part of her body is coming out of the glass, and that would be very difficult to do, even for a very good photographic expert, you know. Well, uh, then the other photo that one of the other photos you provided was a little girl, and she seems to be in the upper window, and now that's that's I, a photo you took, right? That's the photo I took. That's I shot that using um, um, uh, color infrared. And that was actually the same weekend that uh, that first weekend we were there. Um, I have the original slide, and what's interesting about that, if you look at the other photos that Tita talks about, you know the the Chloe photo. Have you seen that one where she's sort yeah. of standing off in between the two buildings? Right. And and then the description that she says that you could see two children sitting up on the on the roof of the house, 
And I think Tita was telling me that that is the window they used to climb out of, the one I took the picture of. Um, and they used to get up on the roof sometimes and play around up there. And, you, and I think Tita was telling me that the mother got upset about that, that they would play up on the roof. Um, but this was, that story was told to me. No, Francis told me that story 20 some odd years ago. So, um, yeah, I, it's interesting that, you know, the puffy sleeves and, it, and she had the sort of the same hairdo. Well, I'm interested yeah. in I'm interested in who was playing inside the gazebo. I think yeah. those are my favorite photos because, number one, there's more than one of them. So there's a couple. Of, and number two, there's clearly something inside the gazebo. It's nighttime and there's something inside the gazebo. Um, and it just seems like that's a... That's a hard one to say as a trick of the light. And what were the circumstances that you took those pictures, David? That was a, that's an interesting tale. It uh, we got a call from Francis, and she said, "Dave, we're having a barbecue. Want you and Karen come up? You know, we I don't have any guests this weekend. I mean, no no paying guests." And uh, we got up there, and Francis she has such a variety and eclectic group of friends. You know, you never know who you're going to you know, meet up with. Um, you know, she has. She was dating a chef at the time, and the chef had friends, and there was a couple of ghost hunters there. Was there. Uh, they had a gentleman who told me that, uh, he's a, and I said, well, what got you into this? He goes, I can't sleep. I don't have a sleep mechanism. <laughs> so I've never heard of that before. I've heard of narcolepsy, but I've never heard of anybody not being able to sleep. He has to meditate. But he was, so, you know, we would all hear these tales and stuff of all these ghost stories, and everybody was sharing ghost stories at the time. And... Then all of a sudden, this was like a 4th of July weekend, it just poured down rain. I mean, it really came down hard. And it, it finally finally just kind of settled down, and, and uh, uh, it was just a typical humid night. And we looked at everybody said, oh, look how beautiful the gazebo looks. I mean, they had a mist on the ground. And and, and at the time, they had a weeping willow tree, and the, and the weeping willow was flowing into the water. And... And I said, oh, I got to get a shot of this. So I, I brought my camera out. It's an old Nikon. And I had 1600 speed film in there and I put it on a tripod. And um, and it's one of these things where you got you can't touch the camera. You know, you got to hit the, uh, the, the button uh, remotely. And uh, it's just old technology. And it just, uh, I would take a picture, boom, and then take another picture. And my wife, you know, she comes out and be known to me. She comes up behind me and taps me on the shoulder. And she's dressed in an antique white dress. Needless to say, I jumped a foot. <laughs> and I don't do that. And she goes, well, come on in. We want to play a card game inside the dining room. And I said, okay, I'm finishing up. So I, uh, I wasn't able to take a third photo. And I wish I would have. Because it seems like something was trying to appear even more. And if I took a series, if I had a digital camera at the time, you know, just going, choo, 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 I bet I would have seen something taking shape. I mean, the next thing yeah. we should cover are the EVPs that you see. And these EVPs are pretty remarkable. Absolutely. Well, let's take a listen. my little cheap 
Olympus recorder, digital recorder with me in my hand as I walked around the room kind of taking things out of my pack and putting them on the bed and stuff. And that's when you hear this woman, you know, coming through. Some people say you can probably hear a little bit of an accent with her, but she just says, I hate you. And, you know, I joked, I, I played it back, you know, and I said, let's see if I can, you know, hear anything. And I played it back, and, it, and when it played, I just kind of thought to myself, gosh, I can't even please dead women, apparently. I do. I did personalize it, though. <laughs> it's, you know, it's not often you get a recording directed at you and saying, I hate you, you know. So Let's, and, uh, let, let's I, listen to that pinch in a glass of water right now, too. That's a good one. Probably edited it out. I just, I was just listening on the, the, the. So the recording we just, we just listened to has has a few loops in it. So you you hear it like four times as we we just yeah. played it. Um, but but it was only recorded once, correct? Right, correct. Yeah, it was a. Uh, there was a conversation going on between my wife and her artist friend uh, Kim, and they were sitting in the. We were we we rented the Bradford suite. And uh, which is the downstairs suite where Francis used to live. And it was the original plantation office. And it's a nifty little room, you know, it, it, you have access to the veranda and the back porch. And in between the conversation between Karen and Kim, pops up this, you know, a pinch and a glass of water. And I don't know if she's requesting it, and we don't, is a pinch, is like a pinch of snuff, or is a pinch of whiskey, you know, pinch whiskey at the time was still available, uh, but we think maybe a pinch of snuff or something, but a glass of water, <laughs> it's like that, that Louisiana accent, that water, and uh, it was quite a, quite an interesting thing, and when I played it back for my wife and Kim, it was like, you mean they were, she was in this room when we were talking? I said, more than likely. <laughs> Well, I like the the phrasing on that because it, it seems it seems to me somehow possibly historically authentic. You know, like you said, there's a certain accent. You know, there's something that's being referred to there that that seems very specific. I mean, it, yeah. it's very low, but you can certainly hear that a pinch and a glass of water and well it's a yeah. it's like a it's like a recording out of time like it, it's like you're picking up a, a groove in the wall or something like that recorded right. that exactly. and, and so it's not a message to anybody as much as it is like uh, like a residual haunting like a woman talking yeah. right. let's listen to them this one last EVP uh, real quick <gasps> Ooh, that one's yeah, creepy. It's very whispery that's a, and creepy. That's a great one. But your first year is uh, my my son's best man going ah, you know, he's not the best card uh, poker uh, player in the world, and he kind of you know didn't like his hand he got dealt. So uh, the hands being dealt out, and then you hear that it's she said something, and then it sounds like she does say, you know, that much is dead or something to that effect. Um, I had heard a story of about uh, a TV production that was was done there at the Myrtles. Um, I believe it was called The Long Hot Summer. There was a TV right, movie. Right, with Don Johnson. Yeah, Don Johnson and Sybil. Was Sybil Shepherd in it too? I think so. Sybil, yeah, Sybil Shepherd, Ava Gardner, and Jason Robards. Yeah, and do you know that story about what happened to them? Yeah, they, um, 
they were filming in the dining room, and if you've ever seen the movie, it's a scene where Don Johnson arrives, and he wants to talk to the former beau of this uh, woman that that has taken a liking to him, and, and so, you know, Don Johnson is sort of a wander kind of tough guy, and... Jason Robard's daughter, who lives actually in Oak Alley, that's, they had their scenes in Oak Alley, um, was dating this man, uh, a local lawyer or something. So he, the scene has that Don Johnson goes to tell him, he says, you know, don't feel threatened by me, I'm not interested in your girlfriend or anything. And it was really a short scene, it was just they, they, they changed that dining room into a, uh, a, a study or a library. And it took them forever to film that scene because every time they did, things would get messed up. Uh, things were knocked over, moved around, um, missing and stuff, you know, just, and it got to a point they had to put somebody there in the room to make sure nothing changed so they can finish the scene. And it spooked Ava Gardner and Jason Robard so much, uh, they were, they were going to stay in the house. Uh, they, they ended up staying outside in trailers. They didn't want anything to do with the house or uh, go into it at all. And, of course, Don Johnson and the Civil Shepherd, that didn't matter to them. They, they had a hard time getting them out of the bedroom. Well, I, I, there is the, the photo I didn't send you that I said belongs to my son, and it's the one that I used on my ghost story, which actually we, we kind of figured out how William Winter was murdered by the Ku Klux Klan. And uh, by looking through the historical documents, and the main suspect was a member of the Ku Klux Klan, but he was never charged in the case. And and, and it was at the time of the rising of the Ku Klux Klan in 1871. Um, there was a quite a controversial uh, governor's race going on. It was uh, the the first and only uh, African American, you know, former slave that became uh, governor of Louisiana. He was kind of appointed there, which wow. didn't sit well sit well with the locals in Louisiana and East Feliciana, West Feliciana Parish, the Ku Klux Klan, uh, which was made up of former, you know, Confederate uh, soldiers and stuff, started doing their night riding. And uh, the plantation owners, some of them just disagreed with it totally. And as I understand it, William Winter was a, a vocal opponent of the Klan, the rising of the Klan. And we feel that's why he was killed. Uh, he walked out onto his veranda when he was called out. Uh, somebody called out for a lawyer, and he was teaching his children at the time, uh, reading to them, and they, they, he, he was called out of the smoking room, and right there on the side of the house, a man on the horse shotgunned him and, and shot him to death right there. Um, that was in 18, January 26, 1871. Uh, so nobody was charged with the case, and it remained a mystery all these years, and we just kind of, you know, just putting stuff together and, and, and some of the documents, we kind of just came to the conclusion that he was killed by the Ku Klux Klan. And so in, in telling this tale to the people there in the foyer, you know, that uh, my son immediately took a picture. And in the mirror, you can see a Ku Klux Klan hooded figure. And floating in the background is a woman that looks like the, the deceased wife, uh, Sarah Winter. Uh, she she was kind of known to be kind of short and portly time when I took that photo, and there was nobody there, and some strange stuff was going on with the lights outside too. I have other pictures of that. I took a picture with, and then lights were off and then went back on again. But there was nobody in the house to be able to turn the lights back on and off, so it was kind of weird. That was just last year. That was um, uh, August or September of last year. 
Well, those are some great EVPs and photos. David Young has certainly captured some very interesting potential evidence for us to consider. But now, let's look at a contrasting opinion of the Myrtle's plantation. We've been hearing a lot about this vengeful, green-turbaned, one-eared slave, Chloe. But what if she didn't really exist? Coming up, we've got a paranormal investigator who argues that very point. In 2004, David Weishart did extensive historical research on the Myrtles Plantation. He wrote an article about it with Troy Taylor for the Prairie Ghost website. He's got a very different perspective. Let's talk to him about that now. David Weishart and Troy Taylor, uh, back in, I believe it was 2004, um, did some research on the Myrtles and wrote an article on the Prairie Ghosts website. And it's a bit of an expose uh, exposing, you know, some of the uh, folklore that really isn't supported by historical documentation. And so it, it really, I think, helps, helps move investigations of the Myrtles further because you know, investigators need to know the truth about the situation or as close as we can get um, before they go in and on an investigation. So, um, so David, how did you get involved uh, with the Myrtles Plantation? Well, as a lover of ghosts and hauntings and haunted places and things like that, and living in Louisiana, I'd always heard of the Myrtles Plantation and always wanted to go there. Uh, and I lived in Plyrell, which is about... Oh, a little over an hour and a half, I guess, from the Myrtles. And um, so one day I was driving out that direction. I decided we'd go to the Myrtles, and I went and we took the uh, the tour. And I just fell in love with it. One day I was talking to uh, one of the tour guides there that was in charge of the house at the time, and we were just talking about Chloe. And um, she happened to tell me that Chloe's testimony after she poisoned the Woodruff's kids was on file at the courthouse. And I said, well, I didn't realize that, you know, that would have been there because what I always understood is they pretty much went and hired right away. And they said, well, no, that, you know, she was arrested or something and, and her statement was taken. So I went to the courthouse to see if I could find her statement. And um, the people at the courthouse said, well, I don't know, but if you want to go back there and look, uh, feel free. So... Me and my friend Donna went back in the record room and just spent several hours going through the records and started finding all kinds of little things that just didn't quite jive with the stories that I had been hearing. And I was telling people myself uh, about the ghost and the history of the Myrtle Plantation. So on many different occasions then, uh, when I had time, Donna and I would go up there and we'd just sort through record books and, and all kinds of... Um, Anything we can find in different angles trying to locate as much information as we could about the people that actually lived in that house and what actually happened and try to separate facts from fiction. Then when I moved up here to Louisiana, I mean from Louisiana to Illinois, I had known Troy uh, long distance and I talked to him about this and he said, well, I'd love to do something about it. And I said, well, that'd be great, Troy, because I've been wanting to write a book, but I don't think I have enough information and you're the author. So he says, well, let me see what you got. And I gave him all my stuff, and we started sorting through it. And he wrote that really good article that appeared in uh, one of his monthly newsletters. Yeah, and, and really, um, 
That article is so impressive because it, it really goes the extra mile and it talks about, um, you know, the historical research that you, you did and takes you through the steps of doing a very rigorous investigation, not just taking the folklore at face value, but um, doing what, what I don't think enough investigators do, you know, trying to follow the story um, throughout history and seeing what you can learn. Absolutely. I, I would say I, just the idea is like, okay, uh, the testimony, I mean, testimony should be at the courthouse, right? So let's go to the courthouse and not taking things on face, at, at face value. I think that's one of the, uh, that, that's one of the best examples of an investigator doing his legwork that I've heard in a long time. Right. And it's well, really inspirational. And I have, I tell Troy, I blame him on that because I had read in his book where he was talking about how important it was to do your research, you know, and try to be able to prove your story. So that's what I did. And I just kind of went over the top with my research and just, you know, really fell in love with doing it. What else did you, did you find or not find that surprised you? None of the paperwork for David Bradford, Elizabeth Bradford, or um, uh, Clark Woodruff, is there ever a name that's even close to Chloe? Okay, so you have you have records of even uh, the, the slaves that these guys owned, right? And you don't find a Chloe in the record, so or any nowhere, name close to that. Nowhere at all. You know, as as the famous story goes, um, Chloe uh, poisoned. Uh, Sarah Matilda and um, the two daughters of the Woodruffs um, with poison oleander birthday cake. That's how the story goes. Yeah, and what did you find? And it was not difficult to just prove that because I just went and looked at death records and I found that um, both um, Sarah Matilda and the two kids, all three died at the Myrtles, but they all died of yellow fever. And um, Sarah Matilda died July 21st, 1825. And then the two kids that died was Cornelia Gale, and she died September 16th, 1824. And the other little girl, which happened to be a boy, his name was <laughs> <Yes>. James. <laughs> that's, and, that's uh, an important detail. On July 15th, 1824. And I'm sorry, what was his name? Could you repeat that again, if you know? His name was James. And and there was one more daughter that did survive, isn't that correct? Right, yeah. Another important thing about what you're doing is that that you're clearing somebody's name, potentially. Right. Uh, because I know that Troy Taylor, your partner on this, has been quite vocal Uh at different speaking engagements, talking about this story, um, and and saying that perhaps a, you know an innocent man was is continuing to be vilified by the story. Right. Of I mean, tremendous brutality. Not only the sexual abuse, but the fact that um, in the story, uh, Chloe is caught eavesdropping, and as her punishment, Judge uh, Judge uh, Woodruff uh, cuts off her ear, and that's why she's always seen wearing the green turban, you know, to cover up her disfigurement. And I remember on our tour when we w- went to the Myrtles, and then we learned this about Chloe and, and the, the disfigurement. You're just thinking, "Oh my God, what a horrible guy!" And it's every cliche you think about a slave owner, like kind of 
dirtbag and you feel that way about right. him. So that's really at- involves you in the story. It makes it a great story. But if you were talking, if you were talking about someone's great great grandfather and saying that this guy was a, a, a rapist and a cruel Vlad the Impaler type character, <laughs> uh, you'd want some kind of. It's like, well, let us know the truth. Right. And I, I think that's right. that's great. Yeah. So so you're you're in a sense, you know, vindicating him of that. Now um, you've also done research about the the William Winter ghost story could you you tell us uh, retell that ghost story as you know it and then talk that, about what the research uh said about that story i can't believe in all these papers that i have here i do not have a copy of that newspaper article because it was on microfiche and really easy to find and so it is in black and white documented exactly what happened that day and basically the story they tell is that william winters was in the men's parlor teaching a Sunday school lesson and somebody rode up on a horse and said, I would like to speak to the judge. So Mr. Winters went out on the porch and as soon as he got on the front porch or the side porch outside the gentleman's parlor, uh, he was shot in the chest with a shotgun blast. He staggered back in the house through the men's parlor, through the woman's parlor, up the flight of stairs. Uh, his wife was in the bedroom at the top of the stairs and she heard the commotion and started to come out, and he was coming up the stairs trying to make it to her, and he died on the 14th step. Well, um, some of that story is true by the newspaper account, but where it stops being true is the part where he walks back into the house and comes up the stairs. Uh, he was doing a Sunday school lesson. The guy called out. He went out to see what he wanted. The guy shot him with a shotgun and fell dead right there on the porch. Now, were you also trying to find out where the Bradfords are buried? Because I understand there's some talk that the what is now the parking lot was the, the family burial ground. It's very possible. Uh, we don't really know. There's no real record. There was one or two things written that kind of gave us an idea. And at one point, I was looking out in the woods uh, to the left of the house. Uh, right along the edge of the parking lot and um, there was a lot of areas in that area that for some reason that seemed suspicious and thinking that that could actually be it. Um, but the Bradfords are uh, unaccounted for. So how did all this research um, change your views of the Myrtles Plantation? It didn't really, or maybe in some ways it actually made me care more for it. Uh, it just bothered me that the true stories were not being told. And there was many times that I, after doing research, would go back and talk with them, or I was hanging out there while they were doing tours and listening to these stories being told. And it was just so hard to sit there and listen to them telling all these people that this is the facts and this is what happened when I knew and I knew they knew that it wasn't true. When I first questioned them about Winters, then I had documentation right there from the newspaper article about William Winter, and they said, well, yeah, we realize that, but this just sounds so much more dramatic to do it this way. And we're not really changing anything, we're just enhancing it. You know, and then uh, when I questioned the situation about the birthday cake, and the whole Chloe thing says, 
Well, that's kind of up in the air. There's some people believe this and some people believe that. And so we just decided to choose this one because it was the one that the most people believe. But to me, I don't care what you believe, if you look at the records and the records see the truth, that's what's the truth. It's not what you believe or not, you know. Right. Now, now my brother Mike and I, we run haunted history tours uh, in throughout the state of Wisconsin. And, mm-hmm. you know, we love folklore, uh, but we're right. also investigators. So, you know, it's not that we will never tell a folkloric story. You know, you can still tell a story um, if, if this is a story that's been told again and again. Um, you're just reporting to people, well, here's what the folklore is. But then you can also, as we do, after you're done telling the folklore, say, well, and here are the facts. And, you know, talk about the discrepancies or talk about what matches. And, you know, I think you can still have the excitement of a great story with a little bit of uh, historical uh, backing thrown in. Well, it's always more fun when you have the facts behind it. It's always more fun when you can point to a newspaper article or, or you can point to a picture as compared to saying, well, you know, we, we just don't know. Right? Because, I mean, then it can be anything. So that's the kind right. of having fact behind it really is what makes uh, the haunting aspects of it the, the, the most fun, I think. Yeah, I agree. And, and if you're able to, you know, follow a story throughout history, uh, you're able to, you know, l- learn some uh, facts uh, that uh, that corroborate, you know, experiences people have been having unbeknownst to them, you know, that that strengthens your case. Absolutely. So, you know, I think you got to got to do um, I would encourage all investigators to do what David has done and you know carry things further you know go to the libraries go to the historical societies and you know see what the facts are um, because folklore is great but it's it's not part of a, a credible investigation here's the big question for you uh, do you still believe that the myrtles might be haunted well, look, I have never experienced anything there personally. Um, I spent the night there once, but I've also spent lots of time there, lots of time on my own wandering the house uh, between tours or when it was a, on an afternoon when there was really nobody around and, you know, I was looking or whatever. But I don't believe that because I didn't experience anything, that doesn't mean it's haunted. You know, if you look at the fact that there was an awful lot of emotion, you know, there was death uh, due to yellow fever of children and adults. There was, you know, several families touched by yellow fever. There was people that, you know, were shot in the case of winter. Uh, you have a wife that was grieving and went into a state of depression. So, you know, you do have the slaves' labor and, and all the stuff that goes along with that. So there was an awful lot of emotion on that property, uh, positive and negative. And I think a lot of that does lend to the possibility of haunting. So, you know, maybe one of, maybe the Woodruff children do still haunt the place. But if they do, it's not because they were poisoned. It's because they died of yellow fever. You know, so I'm not totally discrediting the fact that it might be a haunted house or it might be one of the most haunted houses in the United States. My whole thing is, if the ghosts of those people are wandering the halls, they're not wandering the halls for the reason that they're saying they are. There's different reasons behind the haunting. And, right. you know, I think an investigator needs to know that. 
Because if you go in there, you know, trying to contact uh, Chloe and trying to get right. an EVP, um, you know, by questioning that spirit or, or doing, um, you know, some triggering, you know, based on what you think the personality of that ghost might be. You're doing cueing with, you know, maybe different music or clothing or uh, behavior. You know, you got to know something about the possible ghosts that are there. Or just, or just the fact that in your attitude and, and what you think these ghosts are. If you think that you are contacting or, or are going to be visited by the spirit of a murderess or a uh, like a rapist judge compared to just some regular people that might have passed away or people that might have had some hard times and died because of disease, that's a completely different story than going in and trying to talk to the, or you know trying to, to see the deceased who made other people deceased. Another one of the stories of the Myrtle, which is probably as popular as the story of Chloe herself, is um, of the mirror in the hallway. Oh, the haunted mirror. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Yeah, I forgot all about that. The along with the story of the poisoning because they believe if you look at the mirror, the spirits of, of Miss Woodruff and the two children are captured in the mirror. Because that's them to believe that if you didn't cover the mirrors at death, that the spirits be trapped inside of them. Well, with all the chaos going on of the three deaths and the different things involved, the mirror was not covered, and the spirits are supposedly trapped in this mirror. And if you look at the mirror, you can see, like, fingerprints, children's handprints, marks on the mirror, and at times you can see the size of a silhouette of a lady's face wearing a big hat. And the story is that this, this mirror was in the dining room at the time of the murder, of the killing, and that's why they're stuck in this mirror. And it was taken out of the house, put in storage, brought back, and they saw the faces in the mirror. So they put new glass in the mirror, and within a short period of time, all the markings of the faces came back again. And supposedly the glass has been changed four or five times in the mirror, and the last time it was changed was in the 80s, and it looks like it's a hundred-year-old glass, and all the handprints and the tears and stuff on the mirror always come back. Well, first of all, I have found no record whatsoever of um, that glass ever being changed. And for the best I can tell, John Lambert Pierce, who was an interior decorator on the models at one point, he is the one that decorated, put the furniture in there that is in the house now. And he is also the one that brought the mirror in. So the mirror was not in the dining room when the children were murdered. Yeah, so it came much the, later. The mirror, the mirror just came from the antique store. So, so David, what would you most like um, the investigator to take away from this? I just would like him to do their homework, uh, you know, and really find out, you know, get... Get the, like, you know, with a history tour, a haunting history tour, you know, part of that's the history. And I don't know, when I was in high school, I hated history. But the older I've gotten, the more I've fallen in love with history, and especially locally, local history, that I can walk into a building and say, this took place here. If, if an investigator was um, planning a trip to the Myrtles, uh, what advice would you give them about their stay there or maybe other places in the community to check out that might be haunted? Um, because 
that's really the audience for this, this video, people that, who want to check out the stories of the Myrtles. What would you suggest for them if they were planning a trip? I would say definitely go to the Myrtles. It's a beautiful place. It's very well preserved. It's very famous. Um, the people there are very gracious. They're very nice to talk to. Very gracious to answer questions. Uh, as long as you don't try to dispute them. Um, I, you know, I would say if you know this, like what we're talking about, you know the truth, you know, go ahead and listen, you know, go to the, the tours and, and uh, listen to their stories and just have a good time. Enjoy the house, enjoy the, the, the war, but just know inside that, you know, it's not quite the way that it happened. Well, David certainly has a unique perspective. And I think all of our guests gave a lot of great information for paranormal researchers and enthusiasts alike. Yeah, I was really fascinated with David's extensive historical research. But I got to say, I learned something new from each and every one of our guests. Well, they've certainly given paranormal investigators something to think about. Well, and that's the idea, right? <laughs> right. We learn to enjoy the folklore, but make sure you dig a little deeper. Yeah, you know, do your homework, and you're sure to have a more successful investigation. All right. Well, I'm Mike from ParanormalWisconsin.com. And I'm Allison from MilwaukeeGhost.com. And we're signing off from the beautiful George Suite here at the haunted Brumder Mansion here in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Happy, Happy hauntings! And forward in time, here we are, back to 2016. Oh, man. Yeah, wow, that four I, years just went by like a flash. Yeah, I don't have the, the wicked spike that I had in 2012, but I kept the beard. <laughs> but I you know what? Beard. It was only one leap year, though. That's true. That's true. So it really is only one year. Right. <laughs> uh, if your birthday is <laughs> February it, yeah. 29th, you're only one year older. Uh, anyway, so that was a lot of fun to do and put together. And um, anyway, you can check out Allison's site at MilwaukeeGhosts.com. I gave up ParanormalWisconsin.com. Okay. Uh, a while ago because um, because we decided to go international. We'll see you on the other side. Yes, exactly. Well, I'd like to thank you and Allison for your investigative reporting there. You and bet. Also, I mean, so you and I have been talking recently about maybe perhaps doing a, an excursion somewhere. And maybe Abs with Allison too, hopefully. Absolutely. So this is this is kind of motivating to get our stuff together and maybe visit one of the places either here in Madison or somewhere, you know, on our route next time we're on tour and do a little on site recording. If, if I think we're gonna I think we're gonna have to do that. Yeah, I think it'd be fun. Anyway, that was a fun thing we did a few years ago working on this video podcast and stuff, but unfortunately the project didn't go anywhere. So at least we can reuse some of that stuff now in uh, a discussion of the Myrtle's plantation. Definitely. And it's good that it can be shared with people and they can enjoy it because, hey, it's good information. Right. Otherwise, just this was just sitting on my hard drive for right. years. So the song this week is inspired by the original trip that my family took to Louisiana when we went to go visit the Myrtle's plantation the original time. And, you know, when you're walking the streets of New Orleans and you see all those interesting people... Um, Anyway, this is the first song off our second album, Loser of the Year, and it's called Freak Show. I'm the head of the shed today, and I'm sweating bullets waiting for you. Jones and Bora fixing my favorite sin. Yeah, I walk the streets for days, trying not to break my mother's back. Looking for silence above the din. Will I be the one who leaves a fancy 
listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side.